0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Reading 1 Corinthians is a little bit like listening in on a conversation that a friend is having with someone else on his or her cell phone. You can hear what your friend is saying, but what the other person is saying is somewhat inaccessible. And that is the interpretive challenge of 1 Corinthians and of 2 Corinthians, for that matter, as well. And then to further complicate things, we are joining this conversation partway through. Paul makes mention of a previous letter in 1 Corinthians 5.9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. Not to associate with sexually immoral people, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, etc. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. to So obviously, 1 Corinthians is not really 1 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians. And then later we discover that 2 Corinthians isn't really 2 Corinthians. It's actually 4 Corinthians So what we have is one side of one half of a conversation that we join partway through. So if we're going to make sense of this letter, we need to give ourselves a few extra minutes here in order to do some basic introduction and orientation. Perhaps it'd be helpful to start by reconstructing Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. You can read about Paul's initial visit in Acts 18 verses 1 to 18. Paul stayed in Corinth for approximately 18 months. It appears that initially he supported himself as a tent maker, and in the course of that work he met Aquila and Priscilla, with whom he stayed for the duration of his ministry in the city. Paul often began new gospel work by supporting himself financially, but thankfully in this instance, a love gift from the churches in Macedonia and Philippi soon gave him the ability to concentrate full-time on his ministry and his ministry was very successful. He was soon joined by Silas and Timothy, which, along with Aquila and Priscilla, made for a sort of dream team of Christian evangelists. As was his custom, Paul began by preaching in the synagogue, and it appears that the head of the synagogue was converted, a man named Crispus. His replacement as head of the synagogue, a man named Sosthenes, was also quickly converted, and this caused quite a stir, as you can well imagine. And therefore, Paul was no longer granted access to the synagogue, so he moved his meetings next door into the house of a man named Titius Justus, and the church continued to grow. Despite the mention of these very prominent Jewish converts, it appears actually that most of the growth came from among the Gentile citizens of the city. Despite all this success, it seems that the Apostle Paul was battling what today we might refer to as depression. He was under an awful lot of stress, and he was facing stiff resistance from the Jewish leadership in the city, and he was now trying to integrate two very different cultures into one Jesus-worshiping church. So I think we could agree a little bit of depression would be expected. Paul was not a superhero. He was just a man given an impossible task by the Lord. But of course, the Lord supplies. And so God came to Paul in a vision. We read about that in Acts 18, verse 9. The Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. This vision encouraged Paul, and he was able to complete his 18-month mission. Paul then moved on and preached the gospel in other cities. He always understood himself as more of a church planter than a church pastor, per se. But he never lost his love or concern for the churches that he had established. After Paul left Corinth, we know that Apollos preached there for a while, and apparently the Apostle Peter was there for a bit as well. And no doubt several other preachers passed through, some very helpful and others not so much. Paul apparently wrote them a follow-up letter at some point, obviously reminding them of the need to practice a new sexual ethic. These folks were, by and large, converted Romans, and the Christian sexual ethic was worlds apart from what was understood as normal among Roman people. So Paul wrote them a letter to remind them that as Christians, they were now obligated to sexual purity. That's the point Paul was reiterating in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That first letter has perished. We don't have a copy of it, But it was obviously misunderstood anyway, because Paul writes what we now call 1 Corinthians to correct their misinterpretation of his original words. They thought, Paul was saying, that they must not have anything to do with anyone who is sexually immoral, which of course would mean any Roman. So they were trending towards isolationism, and thus Paul originally began composing 1 Corinthians largely to address that error. But then he heard from Chloe's people about some other problems. And then subsequently, he heard from Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus about some further problems when they arrived with a letter from the congregation. And so Paul's short letter became a rather long letter, and that is the letter that we begin to read today. If you're a Bible reader, then you will know that this letter reads differently than Romans or Ephesians, for example it does not appear to have been arranged according to any particular theme. It is what scholars refer to as an occasional letter, meaning that it was written in response to particular needs or questions. Some scholars identify 10 separate questions or concerns, the first several being Paul's concerns based on the reports that he has received followed by answers to the questions contained in the letter that those three men mentioned earlier delivered to him. And that is probably correct. Whether there are 10 questions or 11 or 9, I'm not going to quibble. The point is that this is a letter in response to a whole bunch of issues and problems. Now, as to the nature of these issues and problems, Kampa and Rosner offer a very helpful summary in their commentary. They say many of their faults can be traced to their uncritical acceptance of the attitudes, values, and behaviors of the society in which they lived, closed quote. Lyle D. Vanderbruck is on the exact same page. He says the Corinthians were simply trying to be Christians with a minimal amount of social and theological disturbance, closed quote. That's very well said. And I think that clues you in to why this letter has been so frequently preached upon within the evangelical church over the last generation, because that's our problem in a nutshell, isn't it? We want to believe in Jesus with a minimum amount of social and theological disturbance, please. But of course, that's not possible. Jesus will turn your life upside down. And if he doesn't, then you've never met him. First Corinthians is about gospel implications. As Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke 6:46. Believing in Jesus entails obeying Jesus. And that is what this letter is about. Now, of course, their cultural issues are overlapping, but not identical with our cultural issues. And so one might wonder whether it is worth our time to go through this letter in such detail. Leon Morris says helpfully here, 1 Corinthians is very much an occasional letter directed to the immediate local needs of Paul's converts. But it would be a mistake to regard it as, on that account, irrelevant to our needs. The heart of man does not change, and the principles on which Paul works are just as important to us as to the Corinthians of the first century, closed quote. That is true. Human nature does not change, and God does not change, and the process of repentance and sanctification does not change. And therefore, the usefulness of this letter remains unaffected. This was, and is, and evermore shall be the word of the Lord to us. So beginning at verse 1, let's hear the word of the Lord together. The Apostle Paul began most of his letters in the same way, making use of standard epistolary form and then adding a few things that anticipate his main emphases within the body of the letter. So generally speaking, you can count on some form of from me to you and some version of grace and peace to you with eight to ten other words that we ought to pay very close attention to. Here we see Paul emphasizing his calling and identity as an apostle. And we see him reminding the Corinthians that they were saved in order to live as saints. They were called to be holy. And you will notice those two concerns revisited and reemphasized again and again over the course of this letter. We also notice the mention of our brother Sosthenes. I mentioned already that Sosthenes was the leader of the local synagogue who was appointed to replace Crispus, who had been converted by Paul's teaching but then Sosthenes too was converted. You have to imagine what an incredible stir that would cause in a city. Imagine if the head imam at the biggest mosque in New York City converted to Christianity. And then imagine if four months later, his replacement also converted to Christianity. That's what's going on here. No wonder there were riots in the streets wherever the apostle Paul set up shop. The brother was turning the world upside down. Thanks be to God. Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love what David Pryor says here. He says, If the first nine verses of this letter were excised from the text, it would be impossible for any reader to come to anything but a fairly pessimistic view of the church at Corinth. Close quote. That's a helpful reminder, because the rest of this letter really is about what was horribly wrong with the behavior of the church at Corinth. But look at what he says here. He said they were called and sanctified. He said that in the first three verses. And then here he goes on to say that they were recipients of God's grace through Christ. They were enriched in every way with every spiritual gift and they were called into the fellowship of the son through faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, they're Christians, they're saints, they're gifted, they're a church. And as we are about to discover, they have a whole boatload of very serious problems. They are saints and sinners, and that's important for us to see. Much of biblical ethics is simply the task of becoming who you are in Christ over time with the help of the Holy Spirit. There is a gap in this church between who these people are and how they are actually behaving. But they haven't come to the finish line yet. The goal, Paul says, is to be guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these people are in process. And that is what this letter is about. Thanks be to God. In verse 10, he begins to address the first thing about this church that needs to begin to change. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Many scholars understand everything from 110 to 421 as comprising a single section. This is the first of those nine, ten, or 11 issues that Paul is addressing in the Church at Corinth. Apparently, this church was seriously divided. It was full of cliques, and it had a tendency to over-identify with particular teachers as opposed to identifying with the Christ of the Gospel. I follow Paul, some said. I follow Apollos, others said. I follow Peter, some declared. I follow Jesus, the others stated, which given that Paul is rebuking them all, probably means I follow my own particular version of Jesus. And the point is that these people were all over the map, and they were terribly divided. And of course, we can see something of that in the contemporary church, can't we? It is all too common to hear people say in our culture, I follow Piper, or I follow McKnight, or I'm a MacArthur man, or I follow Boyd. We have become... Remarkably tribal in the last couple of years. And so this is a good passage for us to meditate on. Paul did not want anyone over identifying with him. He says that he was glad that he only baptized a handful of people in Corinth, lest there be any confusion as to the identity of the true and eternal head and leader of the Christian church. He came to preach Christ, not to recruit people into his own personal sphere of influence. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. As we've already mentioned, the essential problem in the Corinthian church was their worldliness. As the pillar New Testament commentary has it, many of their faults can be traced to their uncritical acceptance of the attitudes, values, and behaviors of the society in which they Closed quote. Well, one of those values that had been brought into the church uncritically and unreservedly apparently had to do with the issue of wisdom. The church had thought to merely add belief in Jesus to their existing worldview and intellectual system, but that won't do. The message of Christ is actually an intentionally crafted rebuke of their existing worldview and intellectual system. That's what Paul is saying. God sent Jesus to destroy the wisdom of the wise. So Jesus is not a cherry on the top of your secular philosophical Sunday. He's not a sprinkle or a spice. He's a whole different meal entirely. Look at verse 21 again. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God designed a means of salvation that would be, bypass the preferred Greek way of arriving at the truth. The gospel is not the conclusion to a rational syllogism, and nor is it a verdict based on overwhelming evidence. It bypasses the Greek way, and it bypasses the Jewish way. It has been designed to call the weak, the humble, the contrite, the poor, and the broken. It is a dog-whistle And it has been pitched intentionally so as to exclude those who stubbornly cling to their worldly wisdom or their arrogant demands for evidence. The gospel of Jesus is like the bronze serpent on the pole in Numbers 21. Do you remember that story? The people rebelled against God, and so the Lord sent serpents into their midst, and they bit the people so that many died. So they called on Moses and admitted their sin, and they asked him to go to the Lord so that they might live. Moses went to God, and God said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live." Quote. Now, to state the obvious, there is nothing entirely rational about this method of salvation. Why a snake? Why do they have to look at it? How, how would that affect the spread of venom in their bodies. If you locked 100 scientists in a room and asked them to solve this problem, this is not the solution they would have come up with. And if you locked 100 philosophers in a room to discuss this problem, this is not the solution they would have come up with. But here in the Old Testament, it pleased the Lord to save those who believe. To look at that serpent as the means of your salvation, you would have to believe that God was really there, that he was the source of all life and health, that you had done something wrong, and that you had to receive graciously from him the means of your salvation. That's what would have to be in your heart in order for you to look upon that serpent with trust and faith. But if you did that, then God healed you. He saved you, and you didn't die in the desert. Same thing here. This is a method of salvation that bypasses the Greek love of philosophy and the stubborn Jewish insistence on overwhelming evidence. Nope. Look at Jesus on the cross, God says. Do that or die in the desert. That's how God destroys the wisdom of the world. It's all based on arrogance and rebellion anyway. He replaces it with trust, humility, and repentance. That becomes the new foundation for all true wisdom moving forward. Thanks be to God. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love what David Pryor says here. He says, God picked out the scum of the earth, and made them kings and priests in his kingdom, quote. Of course, if we've read the Gospels, we are more than prepared to agree with that assessment. Matthew 5.3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the parable of the banquet, Jesus has the master telling his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And in the sermon that he gave at the start of his public ministry, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Luke 4.18. God is doing a new thing, brothers and sisters. He's turning the world upside down. He is casting down the proud and lifting up the poor and the lowly and the humble. And when he is through, you can be sure of this, my friends, that no one will boast in the presence of the Lord. It is because of him, his call, his wisdom, his grace, that you are in Christ. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also access all our content through the app, the Into the Word app that is available wherever you get apps, and it is the best way to access all of our content. We have so much content now, by the grace of God, that it's hard to find without the app, and so we would encourage you to get that. You can use that to find all of our Old Testament episodes, all of our New Testament episodes, and all of our special topics episodes as well. We also would love for you to check us out on Facebook. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there. Just put in the search bar, Into the Word, and you ought to be able to find us. And you can connect with other Bible readers there, folks who are posting, reading, commenting, liking, and sharing, and it's just a great place to build a little bit of community around the discipline of reading God's Word. Love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.